0: In November 2014, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I centennial symposium in partnership with the Hampton Roads Naval Museum and the Old Dominion University Department of History. The following is a lecture by Dr. Frederick Dickinson, one of the symposium presenters. Dr. Dickinson is a professor of Japanese history at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, War and National Reinvention, Japan in the Great War, 1914-1919. to Dr. Dickinson presented on the topic of Japan and World War I. I do want to thank the uh, um, MacArthur Memorial, the, uh, uh, also the uh, Hampton Roads Naval Museum, and Old Dominion for inviting me here. Uh, to this wonderful occasion. It is a personal honor uh, and privilege for me, uh, but I also think it's, it's, it's a personal honor and privilege for Asia to be included on the program of World War One. So, thank you for that. And I think, you know, you guys thought of it because cause you have MacArthur. I hate to admit it, but this is the first time I've actually been to Norfolk, even though as a Japan Specialist, I should have made my pilgrimage a long time ago. For us Japan Specialists, uh, General MacArthur is very dear to our hearts. Uh, he is, you know, for us, You know, I I, I do realize he's important in the First World War, but uh, for us, we we think of him as the Asian general uh, and one who was very much involved in the United States going global uh, and going Asia-Pacific in the 20th century. So I think it's very, very um, apropos. So thanks. Um, I do want to uh, speak of the larger issue of war and Asia and why, why we should even be worried about Asia. Uh, today. I think we'll, we'll ultimately get there. Uh, just to begin here with my frame of, you know, uh, some of you already mo- know uh, of what the Japanese are up to during the war. Uh, this is one of the uh, enterprises. It's the Siberian intervention. We'll get there in a second. Uh, but it's not just the Siberian uh, intervention. Of course, this is the usual map of the World War. Uh, it's often depicted this way. And this is for, for, for obvious reasons, this makes sense. This is the main uh, area of activity. Uh, but of course, it is not a European war. It is a world war. Uh, and you can see that, of course, much better with this this kind of map, and I think this map is quite astonishing. I mean, basically, you notice with this map that almost every country that you can think of on this map is involved in the war in some way. Uh, it's only uh, a few sort of areas in Latin America that remain sort of blank. Uh, other than that, you know, it's really super, super uh, global, and you could sort of talk about any one of these. Of course, I'm only going to be focusing on the East Asia part, uh, but I would sort of keep that in mind. I think for us Americans, it's not... D- too difficult to think of this as a global war because, well, you know, we're, we're not there in Europe and we know that we played an important part. And so, yeah, obviously it's, it's a global war. But uh, from my perspective as an Asianist, it's, I'm here today to tell you it's, it's not just the Americans that make it global. There are other folks who make it global. And back to this map again. Well, notice, you know, where the United States is. Notice where the sort of connections with the war are the most tenuous. Again, as we observed before, it's, it's Latin America, almost everywhere else. And particularly if you look at sort of Africa, Middle East, of course, we already, we just heard the very important story about the Balkans and Middle East. Uh, but Asia as well, it's, you know, it's basically all colored up. And I think that's a nice sort of reflection of the fact that it, it's that part of the world. If you're talking about this as a world war, yes, it's this, but it's okay, it starts here. And I think, you know, this is the really most important part. And I'm going to sort of give you the pitch of, of why we need to sort of think about what's going on here, basically parallel with what we, we know that's going on here. Uh, and just keep in mind, it's happening long before anything is happening over here. Uh, to start with, I mean, Shaw nicely g- gave us a, a picture of sort of co- uh, contingency in history, and I love that. Uh, and I, I too would like to get away from the sort of structural uh, notion of, uh, you know, slip-slide, slip-slide to war. I will, however, begin with, uh, this frame, which ch- shows you, you know, basically, I- in essence, one of the sort of structural arguments is this: this war is very much dependent upon the disintegration, uh, slow but steady disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, and so we're back to this this map again. And you know, you can you can see basically timeline-wise how it's working. It's really the Balkan crises, of course, that sort of uh, lead up to this uh, this great war, and certainly are among the most important sort of initial triggers. I would just sort of. Uh, remind you though, if you didn't already know so, that you have a very sort of similar situation going on in Asia. It's basically a Balkan crisis of the East. And w- what I mean essentially is China is the Ottoman Empire of the East. In other words, China is in sort of a sim- similar circumstance. China is great sort of long-lasting dynastic empire. So the, I- the, the, the political, economic, cultural sort of node of Asia, which by the 19th century is, ge- is getting into very sort of deep trouble. Uh, in the way that the Ottoman Empire is doing at basically the same time. So you have, you know, difficulties in the the Ottoman Empire beginning in the 1830s. Well, um, opium war, as you may know, uh, is fought in China between the British and the French to obtain more sort of commercial rights in China. This is happening in 1839 to 1841. Uh, You do have then the Sino-Japanese War. That is the Japanese who come online and do defeat the Chinese uh, in war, and basically at this point, by 1895, things are gangbusters. Uh, you know, talk about, okay, wh- who's paying attention to what in the world in the 1890s? Well, sure, the Balkans may be, uh, I guess this is perhaps a little bit uh, early for the Balkans, but it's certainly not early for Asia. There are those very smart historians in the United States, like Brooks Adams in 1895, who are making the very important comment that it's Eastern Asia which is the prize for which all the energetic nations are grasping. Of course, you can see the sort of uh, social Darwinist sort of uh, language here. It's very much, it's not simply being used in the Middle East. It's not simply being used in the scramble for Africa. It's also being used quite, quite importantly. Uh, in increasing sort of uh, great power attention to Asia. But essentially what's happening, uh, particularly after the Sino-Japanese War, is, um, you know, great power scramble to carve out spheres of influence, okay? You're not, you're not taking parts of the uh, Qing dynasty uh, apart, but you are sort of s- carving out special interests, special uh, uh, ability to create, uh, to um, put in naval ports, to, to uh, uh, operate mines, uh, create railroads, um, basically, by the eve of the First World War, most of the great European powers uh, own most of the Chinese economy. And they're, you know, they're all moving in in various parts of China. Uh, again, this is not formal uh, colonial rule, but, you know, basically based upon where they are geographically already in Asia, you have the Russians moving into North China and Manchuria, you have Britain in the Yangtze Valley, you have the Germans, uh, after 1895, moving into the Shandong Province, which is uh, very near uh, the, the British. You go south, you see uh, the French moving in, etc. So, uh, again, this is not formal colonial rule, but it is substantial. It is a substantial sort of prize that uh, all are waiting to sort of take advantage of. Not only then do you have sort of this great power sort of uh, competition as you see in the Balkans, you do have this other sort of structural issue that one often talks about when we talk about their lead up in the First World War in Europe and that is you have certain entangling alliances and of course for our purposes the most important one is the Anglo-Japanese alliance. You know, this is quite interesting particularly just if you remember that the British are, until this time, uh, supposedly sort of abiding by theory or or, um, reality of splendid isolation. They're trying their best to not tie formally with uh, certain powers. It is after the Anglo-Japanese alliance that the um, Entente Cordiale uh, that was mentioned earlier today is coming through, and the Triple Entente. These are coming after the Anglo-Japanese alliance. So for me, the Anglo-Japanese alliance is is a wonderful sort of vision of how things are sort of really picking up and important in Asia to the extent that the greatest naval power on earth uh, is is deciding that it must tie its stars with the other rising power of Asia. Of course, this is, from the British perspective, it's particularly uh, in response to its competition vis-a-vis Russia. So we do have sort of great power competition. We have entangling alliances at the same time that we have things going on quite dramatically in Europe. And this really is sort of the general large explanation of why it is that we have this strange phenomenon that Japan is, well, if you think about Japan and when it's declaring war, it is declaring war soon after it's asked by the British, and it's asked because they are allies, Uh, In fact, the night of this formal uh, sort of um, invitation, uh, the Japanese cabinet meets and basically says, okay, we've got to do something about this. And they are deciding then to align with Britain to do their best to basically uh, deal with German forces that are uh, in in Asia. And for me, it's quite remarkable, again, because this is, if you look at what countries uh, throughout the world, if you go back to the old map, who is sort of uh, plugged into this, for the most part, uh, areas in the Middle East, other areas in the, in, in the Africa, areas in, 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 in Southeast Asia or whatever, they they plug in to the war because of their formal ties to the empire. Japan has no formal ties; it's not part of any uh, empire itself. It does have an alliance with Britain, and so it is one of the very few uh, powers completely outside of the sort of European orbit that does declare war very early on. August 8, we're talking 1914 here. And uh, sending, uh, sends uh, to the, the Germans an ultimatum to give up the, the Qingdao territory which, where the Germans had been sort of ensconced since the sino japanese War. And they get a, a negative response and that leads uh, basically to a war. Again, just, just think about the timing here, it's quite, quite impressive. This is the beginning of a very substantial sort of Japanese action in the war from the get-go. By September of 1914, the Japanese are also chasing the German Navy outside out of the German Micronesia. I'm sorry, this is a a Japanese map, but you can see sort of uh, here's the Marshall, uh, uh, Mariana and Caroline Islands, uh, north of the equator, which uh, Japan takes care of. They sort of immediately occupies and takes over, in addition to moving into Qingdao right there, taking over that just two months later by November of 1914. And we heard earlier today about the imp- pivotal nature of the Battle of the Marne and how it was a, a great check to German power. Well, this, this also was a significant check to German power. Essentially, this is the end of German power in Asia. So, in that sense, it's sort of a, a war that's, that's won. Here we have the Japanese accepting the German surrender in uh, German Micronesia, and here we have the Japanese cavalry kind of coming into Shandong province where uh, Qingdao is, is located. Uh, it doesn't stop there. Even though essentially war against Germany in the Asia Pacific is won by November of 1914, the Japanese do get involved because they're requested to in the war in the Mediterranean in particular. It's the Japanese Navy that gets involved. And well, first they are uh, involved in convoying British imperial troops from Australia and New Zealand to uh, to the Indian Ocean, and there are several Japanese warships that are sent to the Mediterranean after the most serious U-boat threats uh, begin to sort of rise up in the 1917. Uh, So between 1917 and 1918, there are Japanese ships active in the Mediterranean, and you may or may not know that there are in fact. Casualties in this war, casualties, that is, Japanese casualties that are uh, find themselves today in the island of Malta. Th- there is a grave, especially in the British uh, cemetery there in Malta, that is dedicated to the 78-some odd uh, Japanese sailors who lost their lives in the battle against the Germans uh, between 1917 and 1918, It's certainly a concrete involvement. Uh, in the war. You may not be quite as familiar with this story of Japanese aid in terms of uh, materiel to some of the allies, particularly to the Russians, 600,000 rifles. The Japanese, uh, their economy begins to boom, and so they have a certain leeway and able to sort of uh, offer uh, some aid as well to the allies. And of course, you know the story of the Siberian intervention uh, whereby, you know, this basically ends up being the largest sort of Japanese ground force engagement in the war. Of course, happens very uh, late in the war, but it nonetheless uh, is another symbol of how Japan is very much involved in this enterprise from 1914 to 19, 1918, well 1914, 1922 essentially here. Uh, and so what we're talking about is you know, a substantial, at least if you look at where Japan is located, a very concrete sort of tie-in to this European war tie in because of the alliance structure, tie in because of the sort of great power competition that has been sort of heating up in East Asia Pacific since the 19th century. And it is also a reflection of a very substantial sort of economic growth that Japan uh, goes through, sort of very similar to what the United States sees, which essentially catapults Japan from an an agrarian country into basically an industrial power. And this is exactly happening at this time, 1914 to 1918, 1919. And you can look at various measures of this, uh, number of exports expanding between this period, manufacturers' goods as part of the exports and becoming very, very important sort of portion of those exports by the early 1920s. And what else do we have here? Japanese population then ex- expanding quite uh, rapidly as well. By 1925, the Japanese are basically the fifth largest country in the world in terms of population. So this is all happening because of the economic boost of the First World War. So on the one hand, they're very much involved in a sort of concrete sort of military action with the Allies. On the hand, other hand, they're sort of making out like gangbusters because they're also helping to supply and sell various things, including shipping, textiles, etc. So very, very important uh, part of the sort of global story of the First World War. And this is not all. The degree to which both the allied powers and the central powers are interested in getting the Japanese engaged from the get-go is quite astonishing. Of course, no one after the fact wants to admit that we were groveling for Japanese aid, but it is quite interesting to note simply, again, the fact that the, the, the British would go out of their way first to tie an alliance with the Japanese, then to say, okay, please, please, uh, will, you, will you please help us, uh, August August uh, 7th, uh, 1914, and then uh, also uh, say, please, please, uh, will you actually send troops to, to the Western Front? Um, and this is happening from the get-go uh, from the British, it's happening from the get-go from the Germans and the Austrians. They are wanting, uh, they're trying their best to sort of lure the Japanese into a separate peace uh, because they realize the sort of potential power of Japan to sort of turn the tables. Uh, Talking about counterfactual, I didn't sort of include it in my remarks, but okay, think about what would have happened after, after I t- tell you the, the whole story. Think about what would have happened had the Japanese gone into the war on the side of the Germans and the Austro-Hungary Empire. Uh, 1915, French request for 500,000 Japanese troops to, to, to the Balkans. And when the U.S. gets involved, what do they think of? They think of the Japanese because they've been doing good, good work in the, in the Mediterranean. So well, can you come help us as well? Request for Japanese battle cruisers to do exactly what the Japanese have been doing for the British Empire. And this just happens, again, from 1914 all the way through until the end. And you can see the Japanese are very conscious of this. And this is not the only – sort of uh, political cartoon you can sort of pull out from the contemporary Japan. But there's any number of <laughs> very interesting images that shows the Japanese soldier sitting very comfortably with the European maidens, uh, whether they be sort of de- depicted as goddesses or depicted here as just this innocent maiden saying, please, please, will you please come, come to the party with us? Thank you. And it's very serious stuff. And I, I tell you this because this is behind sort of the major sort of geopolitical issue that I want to get, uh, bring home today, which uh, Japan sort of symbolizes during, during this war. And that major uh, geopolitical issue is the fact that the Japanese during the First World War are becoming for the first time a world power. Uh, with the Russo-Japanese War, they are a regional power by 1914 and 1919. Just by virtue of the fact that you know they are seen as a fairly significant sort of tipping of you know they can they can make a difference. Everyone wants them on their side, and their economy just continues to grow and makes that a reality. And so this is the whole point of why you invite the Japanese to the Paris Peace Conference the Japanese have a tendency to be a little bit on the silent side. And they were fairly silent at the Paris Peace Conference until it it came to something that was very important for them, like Shandong province. But this is not the point. The point is that they were there, and they were invited to be there, and they were part of the Big Five uh, sort of uh, group that was at the uh, Paris Peace Conference. And this is the first international conference
1: where Japan
0: sits down with the other big boys as number five. It gets better. At the Washington Conference, they sit down with the big boys as number three. This is the Naval Conference of course in 1921, 2022 and they're of course uh, acknowledged as having uh, the, the third largest navy in the world, and they, they're, they're you know they're 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 very seriously involved in discussions with the British and the, and the and the Americans on how we deal with the sort of arms race that is sort of getting out of control after the uh, the First World War. And again, uh, a lot has been said about the Washington Conference, uh, subsequent Geneva Conference, and the London Naval Conference. All, ultimately, as you know, the Japanese sort of forsake this whole thing. But you know that comes later. Let's preserve. The contingency that Shaw nicely sort of set up for us and just recognize what is happening in 1919, 1922. Uh, the fact is, the Japanese are very much involved in creating this new sort of international peace structure that is going into place because of the devastation of the First World War. Uh, and reflected again in, in the words of the Japanese Prime Minister, Haratakashi, in, in 19, uh, 1920. He says very proudly, at Paris, um, as one of five great powers, the Empire of Japan uh, contributed to the recovery of world peace. So listen to the language here. He's not, he's not saying, oh, well, we got what we wanted at, pa- at Paris. We got Shandong and we basically, you, you know, did, made out very well. But he's saying, we, we participated in the new sort of international discussion on peace. And this is the first. Uh, and with this, the empire status has gained not just look what we got, it is look who we are now. We are something much different than what we were in 1914, and we're very, uh, something much different than what we were in 1905. Uh, I said I was going to talk about the principal global implications. You can sort of uh, guess where I'm going from here, but it's not quite what you think. Um, yes. I would agree with those who have already sort of hinted to the idea that the major sort of global implication of the European war is embodied by this quotation from uh, uh, Sir Edward Gray. If you went online and looked at, uh, did some of the exercises that is sort of accompanying uh, sort of this World War I uh, sort of conference and uh, event uh, that the Mark Arthur uh, uh, sort of memorial has produced, they have uh, on that sort of worksheet, uh, they very much sort of bring out this quotation very. Uh, Yeah, at the very beginning of the war, um, when uh, Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary of 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 the British, uh, is saying that the lamps are going out, Uh, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall we shall not see them again in our lifetime. Uh, As it turns out, uh, you know, this was a little bit of an overstatement. Maybe it depends on how you look at it. Europe was not uh, was not uh, destroyed by the war. It was it was sort of it was very, very significantly maimed. But if you look at the long term, he was you know, very, very prescient, very, very right. And it's not simply this story again. It's not simply the idea that the First World War is bringing the American century. I, I would not deny that we have, obviously, a very important shift of power principally at this event from Europe to the United States. The US sort of begins to become the decider, so to speak, uh, in political, economic, social, cultural terms. And you can see this, too, by, by the degree to which sort of American, just, you know, American economy, American culture just comes in like gangbusters in Japan, uh, you know, in the 1920s. And that's another whole interesting story uh, that my uh, recent book was about. But anyway, uh, so okay, this is, this is clearly uh, important. But of course, I've been talking more about this issue, the issue that, uh, yes, it's the beginning of the American century. Uh, don't forget, it's also the rise of Japan. But the most important thing is not the rise of Japan, It's actually the other part here, and it's not simply the decline of Germany. It it seems to me you really do get a picture of where the world is going globally, geopolitically, after 1919, in Asia first, not in Europe. Because what happens in Europe after the First World War? Essentially, uh, yes, the losing empires lose and they implode. Right. Uh, Russia, Ottoman Empire, also Hungary, uh, Imperial, Imperial Germany. Obviously, those guys didn't get didn't get the good uh, part of the deal. But even if you sort of think in terms of the French and the British, who who won? Uh, yeah, essentially, what happened in Europe and Africa is, well, their you know their empire basically expanded. The, the largest extent of the British and French empire is after nineteen nineteen. It's not before. So even though, you know, Woodrow Wilson is, you know, coming out and would like to sort of uh, talk about the uh, self-determination and would like to move beyond uh, an era of, of beyond empires, well, that's not really happening immediately, at, at least uh, certainly not in the Middle East, certainly not in Africa, uh, but I would argue that it is very much happening in Asia in a way that is quite shocking. Remember this quotation. Just remember, again, the a degree of interest in Asia in the latter 19th century the degree to which these uh, great European empires were at least plugging into the Chinese economy. It's not a formal empire, but they are very sort of excited about the growth potential and being there on the ground uh, with what's happening. Uh, But what happens? Uh, This is another episode during the war that I didn't mention. Often it does come up in the discussion of Japan during the First World War. The so-called 21 demands. This uh, This is the diplomatic sort of negotiations with China, whereby the Japanese basically negotiate to get all kinds of privileges throughout China. Remember when I showed you the map about, um, you know, great power sort of competition right after the Sino of the Japanese War. Basically every power had, had their little uh, 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 fiefdoms in various parts of China. The Japanese are going for broke. and They're going for broke because they, they, they know they can go for broke, because the Europeans are, are, are caught up elsewhere. I'm not saying I'm not saying that they're actually taking over China. This is not formal colonial rule, but what what does happen is, well, I guess this is a, a better illustration of it. Yeah, again, back to the Siberian intervention. The Siberian intervention is an Allied intervention. The Japanese are asked to join, uh, but they don't quite join uh, upon the same uh, sort of terms that um, uh, the Americans thought uh, they were going to come in t- uh, when they originally asked them. And what I mean by terms is basically the, the, the numbers. Uh, for me, the sort of a, the interesting thing about the Siberian intervention just goes to show you the degree to which Japan has become the decider in Asia in an area where the powers were very interested uh, to be plugged into. Uh, Japanese troops 70,000, 70, no one is anywhere near that. And you can see that the, 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 again. It's sort of in Japanese, but all, all colored territories. The 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 orange part here is the Japanese formal empire in Korea and Japanese archipelago, southern Sakhalin Island. But uh, all the rest of this uh, sort of brownish is where the Japanese troops are sort of uh, making their way all the way to Lake Baikal to to Irkutsk, you know, to everyone's astonishment and amazement. So whoa, 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 what are we going to do? So another nice sort of visual picture of how things are happening. Very, you know, the First World War causes changes in Asia that are quite substantial, that that there's a certain certain lag in in Europe. Of course it happens in Europe uh, ultimately, but in terms of empire, it's not immediate. So given the sort of dramatic rise of Japanese power during this time, uh, you know, you've probably heard in the history books about American visions of Japan toward the end of the war, British visions, and and basically they begin to get very nervous. Uh, They begin to sort of call the Japanese various names, and the worst thing you can call the Japanese in 1918 is Germany of Asia. So there are various, various people in the United States, in, in Europe, uh, who are beginning to sort of associate the Japanese with the terrible sort of militarism and aggression that they see, uh, sort of, the, the, well, they, the, they describe as, as the sort of uh, the, the locus or the, the, the beginning of the war in Europe. And this obviously is a very bad thing. Uh, This has sort of been sort of incorporated in the historiography as as the actual uh, sort of uh, account of what is happening. Uh, What I would say is no, Japan is not the Germany of Asia. Japan is simply astonishing everyone by its rise of power, and everyone, no one is able to do anything about it. And again, just to give you one other thing, and we're just dealing with China here, basically the idea not simply that Japan is rising, but that Japan is going to be the sort of determiner of events uh, in Asia. And you have this actually specifically articulated in Japan, even at the beginning of the war. Uh, Governor General of Korea, of course, Korea is a Japanese territory, so he's a Japanese general. Uh, But basically, you know, during, uh, by, uh, at the end of the war, Japan becomes the most important political and economic presence in China. You can look at the chart here. I can't really see it from here, but if you can look look at the numbers for Japan, how they change in terms of its investment percentage uh, and uh, vis-a-vis the British – who are the other most important uh, power. Where are they? Are they up there? Yeah. And just see how the tables begin to turn. I mean, obviously, the British are still very important, um, but the British cannot boast of having the most sort of British nationals actually living in China. You have a very significant Japanese physical presence in China uh, by the end of the war through through the 1920s. And this is the beginning of something important. Uh, here we see a Japanese uh, sort of sponsored uh, textile mill with Chinese uh, Chinese workers. So essentially what I'm trying to say then is for me, uh, looking at this, uh, these events from the perspective of Japan, it is a global vision. It is, it, uh, is also an interesting lesson in how we might think of, of wh- where, where do we carry the legacy of the First World War. It used to be in the Japanese case, as with Fritz Fischer in the German case, you're looking at the First World War to talk about okay, what's going to happen in the Second World War. And yes, you could easily tie some of these events happening in Asia, you know, 21 bands or whatever, as sort of the precursor to Japan's sort of very a serious effort to sort of begin to take over Asia and become, uh, articulate a greater East Asia prosperity sphere. I would just, sort of, though, borrow from Sean and say, well, hold on, there's some, <laughs> there are a lot of things that happened uh, between that time, and obviously we get there eventually. But there's a whole different story in the 1920s. I'd be happy to talk to, uh, to you about it later. I won't be uh, talking about it now. But for me, the most important sort of legacy of this war is not how this takes this uh, rise of Japan leads into the Second World War, it's actually uh, how this teaches us, um, you know, the slow, steady movement of the center of sort of political and economic activity and core away from Europe, away from the U.S., and somewhere very different. And if you've been watching the uh, sort of or listening to the sort of uh, current events, we just had the APEC uh, conference uh, in Beijing. I think this sort of vision of everyone dressing up in Chinese sort of shirts gives you sort of an indication of what, for me, the sort of rise of Japan uh, in the First World War leads to. It doesn't lead to greater East Asia co-prosperity in 1930. It could, and it obviously does. But more importantly, it is the beginning of a very substantial change or shift of of center of gravity, global center of gravity from Europe to the Asia-Pacific. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at Amanda.Williams at Norfolk.gov.